1: Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea, this is Naked Oceans.
2: This month on Naked Oceans, we're venturing beneath the waves to find out about sex in the sea. Yes, that's right, Valentine's Day is with us with all the fun of overpriced flowers and tacky cards... But instead of the birds and the bees, we're looking at corals and jellyfish as we explore some of the weird and wonderful ways marine animals reproduce – How do they track down a mate in the enormous oceans? What happens when they're stuck firmly in place on the seabed? And what does all this mean for our efforts to protect ocean life? We'll find out what happens when the animals that build coral reefs take part in a huge, synchronised love-in, and how the mating habits of many fish put them in grave danger of being
3: overfished. Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and with me is Sarah Castor-Perry. Hello! We'll also find out how jellyfish make more jellyfish and whether these prolific beasties really are taking over the oceans. Plus, we'll be catching up with another denizen of the deep in Critter of the Month.
0: If the female of the group dies, then the male will change sex and take the position of the female. And the largest non-breeder, that's the one at the front of the queue, will start breeding as a male.
3: Stay tuned to find out which marine expert we have this month and which critter they picked. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at NakedOceans or email us. The address is NakedOceans at scientist.com.
1: Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans on the web at NakedScientist.com slash oceans.
2: Let's kick things off with some news from the underwater world. Sarah, what have you got for us this month? Well, Helen, have you ever eaten oysters? I do actually quite like oysters. I never did like them, um, but I've actually, they've really grown on me, I have to say. I have to admit, yeah, I do like oysters.
3: Well, as we know, they are considered quite the delicacy, although I have to say, I'm not a fan. I, I don't like the, mm, the texture. Mm, not a fan. Uh, but a new piece of research has actually found that 85% of all oyster reefs have actually been lost globally. And we're all familiar with the fact that overfishing is a problem, but this research has pointed out another marine ecosystem that's in trouble. Michael Beck and his colleagues estimated the condition of 144 bays and 44 ecoregions across the globe, based on current oyster productivity compared to historical records of catch, so ships' logs and middens, uh, sort of piles of shells, that sort of thing, Um, and also the aerial size estimates of the oyster reefs. And in many places, historical records suggest that oysters have been really abundant in the past. I mean, now oysters are considered to be sort of a rather posh and fancy thing to eat, but actually they used to be so abundant that they were considered to be poor man's food. The researchers found that the condition of 70% of all the bays they studied and 63% of the eco-regions was poor, which meant that they'd lost between 90 and 99% of their original abundance. And they also found that especially in Europe and North America, 37% of the oyster reefs were functionally extinct, which means that they suffered losses of over 99%, which is pretty bad news really and it's not just the oyster populations themselves that are suffering they're really important for the rest of the ecosystem too so they do things like filtering the water they provide food for other animals and the reefs themselves provide a structure and habitat for other species to live on so when you lose the oysters the whole ecosystem is in trouble really But the paper then also goes on to suggest some conservation techniques that could be employed to help preserve the reefs, because some of the least affected reefs that they studied were in ecoregions where there were marine management systems in place. So they suggested that these management systems are a good thing and could help Reefs in the future so they suggest things like protected areas managing the fisheries more closely and even attempting to restore reefs as well so even though it's a bit of a worrying picture now there are some possible ways to improve the situation
2: well that's good because uh, otherwise I'm going to have to give up oysters <laughs> but I think most of the ones that I eat actually are farmed which has a whole bunch of other issues that that comes with with aquaculture. Well, there's another piece of slightly worrying news this month. It does all seem to be a bit doom and gloom um, because we've come a step closer to seeing a brand new threat to the oceans and that's that the government of Papua New Guinea has granted the first licence to mine the deep sea. Hydrothermal vents are those weird and wonderful ecosystems fueled by bacteria that harness chemical energy from mineral-rich water that gushes up through cracks in the seabed. And the seabed surrounding them is laced with metals including gold, silver, zinc and copper. But only recently has the technology advanced far enough to make mining these valuable minerals a reality. Well, Cindy Lee Vandover from Duke University in the US has written into the journal Nature, raising her serious concerns that before the deep sea is opened up to wholesale commercial mining, proper conservation plans urgently need to be put in place. Now, she admits that she'd rather see hydrothermal vents just left well alone, and I think a lot of us would definitely agree with that. But um, she just thinks it's not realistic at the moment. I think she's probably right, that given the relentless demand there is for minerals to fuel our gadget-hungry lifestyles, this kind of thing is just going to end up happening anyway. And the interesting thing is that actually she's been working um, with Nautilus Minerals and they're the Canadian company that's been granted this first mining licence. And uh, she says that it's, the reason she works with them is partly because she gets to do really interesting research that otherwise as an academic she just might not have the possibility you know, and, the, and the, the funds to be able to do that.
3: So what exactly are the plans that this company have got in place for actually doing the mining? Well, this is the bit that I find
2: really terrifying, That what they say they're going to do. And it's not—it's a couple of years off still, but their plans are to dig 20 to 30 metres down into the seabed over an area of about 10 football fields. Um, I mean, I guess compared to sort of landmines, you know, if it's a surface landmine, you've seen kind of, you know, you see great big open craters that they've dug stuff out. So I guess it's, it is is comparable, but somehow it somehow just seems really shocking, especially near to these really important, well, these really unique um, ecosystems. Um The company does say what they're going to do is leave a similar area of seabed nearby as a temporary marine um, protected area. And the idea is that then that will help kind of reseed the area that they've mined. But as Vandover points out in her letter to nature, um, at the moment we just don't know if that's going to work. We really don't have enough information about how these ecosystems work, how they recover naturally from that similar, well, maybe smaller scale um, problems. You know, a black smoker can collapse or there can be a volcanic eruption. So these are quite dynamic environments, but we just don't know what's going on. And we really have no idea about how quickly... They might recover, you know, naturally, let alone if you come along and dig out 20 metres of the seabed. Um, And the really big problem here is that currently there are no regulations that oversee what goes on in the deep sea in terms of, like, mining these these hydrothermal vents. And a lot of them are found in international waters, which makes this another whole minefield, if you like, sorry, um, of problems. Um, So... uh, Basically, this problem isn't going to go away. There are lots of other nations and companies that are showing interest in mining the seabed. Um, so we really don't have long to try and figure this all
3: out. Sorry, people, that wasn't too happy, but you've got to know about it. <laughs> it's happening. Well, if, you, if you'd if you like to find out more about either of our slightly sad and depressing stories about the ocean this week and all of the others we've covered, you can go to thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans.
1: From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans.
2: This month, Naked Oceans is all about sex in the sea. Coming up, we'll uncover the secret lives of jellyfish and discover how they find each other to mate as they drift through the enormous oceans. Well, for many bony fish, finding each other in the ocean isn't the problem. There are some that gather together to form enormous aggregations involving hundreds and thousands of individuals. But these mating rituals have transformed one fish that lives on coral reefs in the Caribbean into an irresistible target for local fishermen. Here's Bryce Simmons from the Reef Environmental Education Foundation and a fish that needs to be left alone when it's in the mood for love.
4: The Nassau grouper is one of the larger Caribbean reef fish. It's it's a tiger striped fish and it's really a Caribbean icon. It's one of those... um fish that you often seem framed in the Wish You Were Here postcards that you may get from your friends in the Caribbean. It's uh, something that people really enjoy seeing on the reefs, both because of its beauty and also because when you find a large fish like that on a reef, it, it makes that reef feel a little bit more wild. So typically, Nassau grouper are solitary and territorial, so they defend areas of reefs. But once or twice during the year, shortly after the winter full moons, they get randy and they go about looking for mates. And The way that NASA grouper do this is they will often swim over very large areas in order to get to one specific place on a reef. And and many, many individuals will do that swim and and gather together in these large aggregations or groups. And during that winter full moon, they will all spawn together. And then when all's said and done, they'll head back to their home reefs, back to their territories and go about their business.
2: Being so predictable in time and space, these um, spawning sites have historically been a major target for fisheries across the Caribbean. And and that's causing serious problems for the Nassau grouper, isn't it?
4: There, There are lots of places now where they've been basically fished to exhaustion. They've been fished to the point where they're no longer worth fishing by, by the local fishermen. Basically, the way that that is proceeded is through fishing down these spawning aggregations. They're literally being serially depleted. And you can imagine when you get very valuable large fish and you get a whole bunch of them all in one location, that's a, that's really an irresistible draw to fishermen. And so when these aggregations are found, they're hit very hard until they're, all of the fish that are there are virtually gone. And what's really kind of scary about it is that in, in most of these places where, where this really heavy depletion or, or overfishing on spawning aggregations has happened, there's very little evidence that recovery happens after the fact. And so once you've fished out those spawning aggregations, there's virtually no evidence that they recover. And so part of the reason that we're doing research down on the Cayman Islands is, well, first of all, it's one of the last places in the Caribbean that has a large healthy aggregation of Nassau groupers, but also it represents a great opportunity to start to investigate how aggregations happen, so getting some basic information on the natural history of of NASA group responding aggregations, and also why it is that, that when these aggregations are fished to the point of near exhaustion, they don't recover.
2: And uh, you've got this wonderful site, by the sounds of it, in the Caymans, where you do still have a a, a large aggregation that's forming. How big is that aggregation? How many fish are we seeing there?
4: Well, as you can imagine, there's a, when you're trying to count fish on a very deep site, it can be a challenge. And so we're using a series of different techniques to try and get the answer to that question. Um, we're estimating somewhere in the ballpark of... 3,000 individuals. And to put that into perspective, when that aggregation was first found on the west end of of Little Cayman, there was something like seven thousand individuals. And uh, at the time that it was discovered by local fishermen, it wasn't protected. And in the first two years, nearly half of the fish on that aggregation were fished out. But uh, the Cayman Islands was able to make a very, very rapid decision to conserve not just that spawning site, but in fact, all of the spawning sites around the the Cayman Islands, it just happens that most of them had already been fished out. So they're protecting these legacy sites. So that's where the Reef Environmental Education Foundation came in, the reef program. And uh, we started working with the Cayman Islands government to, after the protections went into place, trying to determine whether or not those protections were A, effective, and B, something that should be kept into the future moving forward as, as a management and conservation program. One of the basic research questions that we had is, are these local fish? Where are these fish coming from and where are they going to afterwards? And it turns out that based on the tagging work we did, not only are all of the fish on the west end of, of Little Cayman that are showing up to spawn Caymanian fish, but they are in fact all only from the island of Little Cayman. And so we found, despite tagging on all three of the Cayman islands, Grand Cayman, Cayman Brac, and Little Cayman, we found no evidence of any fish moving between islands over deep water. And so if you're conserving fish on spawning aggregations, you're conserving your local spawning stock. What's also really important is that It turns out that basically every single reproductive-aged fish on the island of Little Cayman goes to the West End spawning site during the spawning season. And so when you are fishing that spawning site, you are basically exposing your entire some reproductive potential for your spawning stock of fish, your whole population of fish, to harvest pressure.
2: It seems to make nothing but common sense that spawning aggregations should be protected. Is that something that we're seeing outside the Caymans? Are other spawning sites being protected from fishing pressure?
4: So one of the nice things that's happening throughout the Caribbean is, is slowly, but surely regional governments are sort of understanding that these spawning sites are important, not just for Nassau Grouper, but it turns out that all kinds of different species use the exact same location on the reef. For whatever reason, there's an importance of place where these spawning aggregations actually actually take place. And so for the Caymans, for instance, so far we've documented something like 25 different reef fish species that are using this spawning site to reproduce. And so there is a movement to start to conserve these locations spatially to establish marine protected areas. And additionally, for grouper species in particular, there are efforts, for instance, in the Bahamas and Bermuda to disallow selling of grouper in restaurants and grocery stores during the time of year when they're reproducing. And it's a way of controlling the fishery during this important time. Now, it's important to know that no NASA grouper has ever been seen to reproduce when they aren't at the spawning site. And what that means is that when they're spawning at the spawning site, that is the only time during the year that they're ever reproducing. And so if if you mess with that event, you are cutting off effectively any reproduction in the population. So it's, it's a very dangerous thing to do.
2: Is this also a global problem that we're seeing in terms of the depletion and disappearance of spawning aggregations?
4: The spawning aggregations have, you know, the, it's... It's something that's been going on for years, fishing spawning aggregations, and fishing locations where fish uh, get together in order to reproduce. There's big examples that people maybe don't really realize, but cod is a great example in the Atlantic. Uh, bluefin tuna in the Gulf of Mexico, that's a spawning aggregation. Fish from multiple stocks of bluefin tuna from as far as away as the Mediterranean will come to the Gulf of Mexico in order to reproduce, and there they are targeted for harvest. So It's a common problem in fisheries in a global context and it represents both a management challenge and an opportunity once we understand the reproductive behaviour of these species to conserve that reproductive potential of the population during a very vital time during their, their natural history.
2: Bryce Simmons there from the Reef Environmental Education Foundation telling us about the Nassau grouper and efforts to protect them in the Cayman Islands and beyond. Now, you know, another interesting thing about a lot of these reef fish that uh, form huge aggregations is that they also change sex. Um, Many of them start off life as females, and then they turn into males as they get older. So they experience these mass orgies from
3: both sides of the fence. Well, moving from the fishes that live on coral reefs to the animals that build them, it's all very well for fish to swim off and find each other to mate. But what about the marine animals that are stuck fast to the seabed? Barnacles have quite an impressive solution to this problem. They've evolved the longest penis relative to body size in the animal kingdom. But even well-endowed barnacles can only reach so far. Reef-building corals have evolved a different strategy for having sex whilst rooted to the spot, and the results can be quite spectacular. Someone who's witnessed coral reef sex is James Guest from the National University of Singapore.
5: It's a pretty spectacular event. Typically you only see it at night time. And just before the spawning, um, you know, nothing is really happening. It's very quiet and there's no activity. And then suddenly, uh, within a period of about half an hour, you'll start to see uh, bundles of eggs and sperm. They're small bundles, they're a few millimeters across. They're often pink or, or red or orange. And they start to be released from uh, many colonies at the same time and also often many species at the same time. And the effect is something like a uh, A sort of a snowstorm in reverse, upside down. So you can imagine uh, at night time with all these brightly coloured bundles all being released, the effect is very spectacular. It's something like perhaps being in one of those snow globes, those little toys that children have.
3: So how many times in a year do we see the spawning?
5: Well, uh, typically there is uh, one, often one major event, um, so there's a kind of a, sp- a peak in spawning activity. In some parts of the world it is around springtime. Um, however, there are other spawning events and, and not all the corals go off at one time. Some individual species and some colonies will go off more than once in a year.
3: And how on earth do the corals manage to coordinate to make sure they all spawn at the same time?
5: Um, it's still a, a bit of a mystery exactly how they do it, but basically it must be at two levels. So, so at one level the, uh, the corals must have some internal clocks that certainly run on a daily rhythm, so what, what we call circadian clocks, um, but they could also run on a, a lunar rhythm, so a, a circa lunar clock. They may even run at a, on, a, on an annual cycle, so a, a circa annual clock. And uh, we know quite a lot about circadian rhythms for a lot of other organisms, but we don't have much information about that for corals uh, yet, although there is some research being done now. But then on another level, there's also the environmental cycles. So the the internal clocks that the corals have um, must be sort of entrained by these environmental rhythms. So the, the environmental rhythms kind of keep the clocks in check.
3: And once they've all spawned and their eggs have been fertilised and started to develop, I suppose they face challenges like avoiding predation and finding a suitable surface to settle on. But what other potential difficulties do the coral larvae and the young polyps face?
5: On top of all the uh, natural challenges that they face, there's the um, addition of the, the sort of human impacts that almost all coral reefs around the world now are feeling, uh, I mean, aside from climate change, uh, many reefs are are, are experiencing very high um, sediment levels because of land reclamation and coastal development and so on. So um, excess sediment uh, sort of falling on top of a small coral polyp can very, very quickly smother it. Um, Another problem uh, is overfishing. So many reefs around the world have lost the big herbivorous fish, which do the job of cleaning the, a lot of the algae off the reef, the macroalgae, algae, seaweeds and so on. And again, when coral spat have to sort of compete for space with algae, often the coral spat won't do as well, and so that's a big challenge for them. And then added on top of that, there's the bigger problem of of climate change. There's not really much known about how climate change is affecting the coral reproduction. We know quite a lot about how it affects adult corals. And of course, it's having a big effect because we've seen lots of corals that are bleaching. That's when they they lose their symbiotic algae. And if they don't recover them relatively quickly, they tend to die. The the few corals that are left, uh, they're not going to have so many individuals that they can mate with. And so, if you, you know, when we go back to what we talked about earlier about these mass spawning events, I suppose the critical thing for those mass spawning events to be successful is to have lots and lots of individuals all spawning at once. But if the sort of critical mass of corals has suddenly dropped drastically, as you can imagine, the the chance of successful reproduction is going to be much, much lower.
3: Because of the overproduction of gametes by the corals to buffer against things like predation, we could use the mass spawning to seed or repair damaged reefs. So either moving the collected spawn to new places or taking them back to the lab to rear them and then releasing them out into the field. Uh, How would that work?
5: So there's a couple of ways that this could be done. One, One way is to sort of harvest um, uh, mass-spawn slicks, just take billions and billions of embryos, and it, exactly as you said, is, to just, is just to pump them down onto a bit of reef, uh, maybe within some sort of enclosure, and try to just massively boost the amount of recruitment. The other way is, uh, again, as you say, we could rear them in, in the lab so that we basically we try to sort of overcome all those, that mortality bottleneck that you experience in the sea, and then settle them in a tank on land, uh, let the corals grow up to a size where they've got a good chance of, of surviving, and then place them back on the reef. So the first method, we've done some experiments with that, and although it works in the sense that we can we can boost recruitment, um, what we found is that if you look at six months or one year down the line, the, the reefs that we have artificially seeded don't look any different from the reefs that have not had any uh, seeding. So at the moment, that particular method doesn't look like it will be very successful. The, the other method of rearing the corals in the lab for a period of time potentially has some promise. And we've had a bit of success with that in designing um, some little substrates that are cheap and easy to make, and we can settle corals onto them, we can rear them, and then eventually we can plant them onto the reef. And we've had some success with the technique. The main problem with it is it's actually very expensive to do. So really, I mean, if you had that kind of money to spend, you'd think that it might be much better to spend it on, on management initiatives, on protecting an area, methods that we know are more likely to be effective, at least at this stage. I mean, I, I think we need to do more research on these restoration techniques, and it may be in the future that they can have some really good uses, and there's some pretty exciting stuff that can be done. Um, I think whatever happens, restoration is never going to be the only solution. We, we have to uh, manage reef ecosystems effectively from the point of view of um, managing, managing fisheries sensibly, coastal development, um, aquaculture development, and you know, ultimately at a big scale, uh, managing climate change. But uh, but yeah, I think we have to remain optimistic and we have to, we have to keep sort of pushing the message that, that reefs are really important, that they're threatened. Um, but there have been some really good examples of reefs that, you know, when they are well managed, they recover very well from disturbances.
3: That was James Guest from the Marine Biology Laboratory at the National University of Singapore introducing us to the intricacies of coral reef mass spawning. And it's not actually just corals that take part in spawning like this. Lots of other marine animals do it as well, like the palolo worms of the Pacific, which once a year break into two, releasing millions of wriggling tails packed with eggs and sperm into the water column. And the native people of Samoa scoop them up in nets and eat them, which I'm sure is considered quite the delicacy, but not sure if I'd like that on my plate on Valentine's Day. And Bermuda fireworms gather together and put on these eye-popping bioluminescent displays while they're courting each other and making babies. So it's, it's all about sort of these massive lovins. A, a lot of species end up doing that. If you'd like to hear a longer version of our interview with James, check out thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials.
1: Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans.
2: This is Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Castberry, and this month we're investigating sex in the sea. Well, being stuck to the seabed may raise one set of challenges for having sex in the sea but relatives of corals, the jellyfish, face quite a different problem. As these simple creatures drift through the oceans as members of the plankton how do they find each other so they can have sex? We chatted with jellyfish expert Cathy Lucas to find out how these slippery creatures proliferate.
6: They breed in two different ways. Their life cycle consists of the jellyfish or the medusa that we're familiar with swimming in the water. And they also have a polyp, a small thing that looks like a sea anemone that lives on hard substances on the uh, seabed. There's not separate males and females, but what they do is they clone or they bud off new polyps. And then at certain times there, mainly this time of year, um, certainly around the UK. They produce um, new baby jellyfish, and that's a process that we call strobilation. The baby jellyfish um, grow up through the spring, taking advantage of the the plentiful food. They grow very rapidly. And then in the late spring, early summer, uh, these reproduce sexually. So we have separate sexes, a male and a female, and these will produce eggs and sperm. And they release the eggs and sperm into the water column. The female will take up the sperm from the water column the eggs will turn into a little lava that swims around for a few days and then that settles back down onto the seabed and that metamorphoses into a, a polyp and so the you know the life cycle starts all over again.
2: And we all know that the oceans are absolutely enormous so how do those those free swimming jellyfish how do they actually find each other to reproduce sexually?
6: Most Jellyfish that we see, or that by far the biggest abundances of jellyfish that we see, tend to be found in estuaries and bays and sort of like enclosed areas. And so just the, the confined areas of those different sort of environments will tend to keep the jellyfish together in a, in a sort of like a physical way. They tend to be aggregated with tides and currents. And sometimes you find if there's very strong winds, they tend to get blown into a certain area. And that's quite often why we find jellyfish stranding on our beaches. So the physical processes are quite a major factor in helping jellyfish populations to keep together. Um, But there's also some aspects of behaviour that they can use. They're able to migrate up and down the water column, usually in response to light. And so as a group of jellyfish, they might migrate up to the surface and then migrate back down Although they're very simple organisms, they do have some sort of sensory capacity. And so it's it's a sort of a mixture of the physical properties of the water and and maybe what the weather's doing, and also some sort of behavioural adaptations as well.
2: Over the past few years, we've, we've heard more and more about the rise of slime with the explosion of jellyfish in particular parts of the ocean. Where are we seeing these blooms and what sort of problems are they causing?
6: Um, yes, there has been a big increase in both sort of scientific and media reports concerning the increase in jellyfish numbers. And there are some particular hotspots that have been quite well documented, um, and these include the Mediterranean, and there have been quite a few incidents in the last five to ten years where a lot of jellyfish have washed up on beaches and they cause nasty stings, and they, so they have to close the beaches there. In the 1980s, there was a classic example of a proliferation of not a true jellyfish, but a thing called a sea gooseberry or tinaful that had been transported over from North America into the Black Sea, and it exploded in numbers and, and caused real problems there. There's also problems in Southeast Asia around Japan and China with the giant jellyfish that can be absolutely vast, uh, so sort of like two metres in diameter, and that's causing real problems for their fisheries there. And then also the Benguela upwelling, which is on the southwest African coast. Um, That's a very important area for fisheries. And there's partly because of overfishing, there's been an explosion of jellyfish that have appeared in that sort of environment.
2: We see that jellyfish have this ability to increase their numbers pretty rapidly. Presumably, their mode of reproduction has a part to play there, does it?
6: Jellyfish in general are very opportunistic. They have enormous appetites. So they can consume large amounts of plankton and they grow extremely rapidly. And also their life cycle is relatively short. So within four to six months, you can go from a newly released jellyfish up to a fully grown, sexually mature adult jellyfish. You know, each polyp can produce many baby jellyfish and and the polyp population, there might be thousands or tens of thousands of polyps living on the seabed. And also the jellyfish themselves, they're producing thousands of eggs and sperm. And so they have the potential in both phases of the life cycle to produce vast amounts of new jellyfish. And so definitely reproduction is, is a big part of their success, but it's, it's just part of their biological makeup. You know, there's the growth and there's the feeding rate as well.
2: But uh, they, they can definitely get those swarms going if they want to. <laughs> they certainly can. <laughs> um, and uh, in terms of... of- the, the swarms of jellyfish that we're seeing at the moment um happening around the world. What is the feeling about that? About is it this sort of global phenomenon a sign of, of long term change in the oceans? Is that really playing out in, in what you're seeing? I'm actually part of an international project
6: that's examining in a way these very questions of is the global expansion of jellyfish blooms really happening? And if so, you know, what is the magnitude of that? What are the causes and what are the consequences of that? Our primary goal that we've been working on over the last 12 months is actually to collate all the data that we can get our hands on of jellyfish abundance and appearance from as many regions of the world as, as we possibly can. So then we can start to say, okay, you know, are these natural cyclic phenomena or is it actually genuinely expanding? And so we've been compiling a global database of jellyfish abundance it's called jedi and we've been using published data extracting data from long-term monitoring programs going through historical records and cruise logs and also using fisheries bycatch data and as well as public sightings So, if people have been to the the beach they can enter their sighting into a database and we can use that as
2: well I love that the jellyfish database is called Jedi. It's a brilliant name. Um, and if you've seen a jellyfish washed up on a beach or anywhere else, perhaps when you're scuba diving, but I hope you didn't get too close, um, then, as Kathy said, do go and get in touch and report your sighting. Check out jellywatch.org, where you'll find tips there on identifying your jellyfish. And we'll put a link to that on our website. That was Cathy Lucas from the National Oceanography Centre at the University of Southampton,
3: giving us the lowdown on jellyfish sex lives. We've nearly run out of time on Naked Oceans this month, but first, before we go, let's find out what we've got for our critter of the month.
0: My name is Peter Buston. I'm an assistant professor in marine biology and evolutionary ecology at Boston University. And the critter that I've worked on for a very long time is the clown anemone fish made famous by the movie Nemo. They're always found in close association with giant tropical sea anemones, which are about on average about half a meter across. The anemones provide the fish with everything they need. They provide them with protection from predators, a place for the fish to lay their eggs, and they never stray from the anemone's tentacles. So within each anemone, there's a single group of clownfish, anywhere from sort of three to six individuals. The largest is always the female, and she's dominant to everybody else. The second largest is the male, and the third largest is a non-breeder. It's neither reproducing as a male nor as a female. The same goes for the fourth, fifth, sixth individual. If we start from the bottom, there's a queue for breeding positions. And so these non-breeders are waiting in line to inherit breeding positions. Lower ranked individual remains small. It remains 80% of the size of the immediate dominant. And it remains small because if it gets any bigger, the dominant would evict it. If, for instance, the female of the group dies, then the male will change sex and uh, take the position of the female. And the largest non-breeder, that's the one at the front of the queue, will start breeding as a male. And everybody else moves one up in the queue. It sometimes takes them 10, 15, 20 years to inherit a breeding position, but it's the best way of sort of going about it because there are no breeding positions vacant elsewhere because all of the anemones are occupied and all of the anemones have a little queue like this going on in them. The species is really easy to work with. You can go onto the reef and you can map out all of the anemones, and you can go back and find the fish exactly where you left them the day before. You can identify individuals based on natural variation in their markings, the same way that you tell your friends apart. I was able to tell apart 350 individuals in the population. They're super photogenic, and so if you go down onto the reef, they're... even with all the other colors around, these clown anemone fish Really stand out. There's loads of interesting questions, but also you can do very cool long term observations of a known population of individuals. And that's what attracted me to working on them.
3: Peter Buston there from the University of Boston, introducing us to the sex changing anemone fish. And you can check out lots more marine critters on our website that's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, that's all for this month on Naked Oceans. A huge thank you to Bryce
2: Simmons, James Guest, Kathy Lucas, and Peter Buston. Tune in next time when we'll be looking into the many ways we trade the oceans from blue carbon to seahorses. Until then, we'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter, at Naked Oceans, or drop us an email. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. And you'll find out more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.
1: Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.